Good morning. My name is Suki Cobb, and I'm reading from Matthew 13, verses 24 through 43, and it's page 1518 in the Pew Bibles. Jesus told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in the field, in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, the enemy came in and, and sowed weeds among, among the wheat and then went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servants came to him and said, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? Oh, no, he answered, because while you're pulling, up, pulling the weeds, you, you may root up every weed <laughs> with them. I'm sorry. Um, let both grow together until the harvest. It, until the harvest. At that time, I will tell harvesters, first collect the weeds and then tie them in bundles to be burned, then gather the weed and bring it into my barn. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it's the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it's the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds in the air come and perch in, the branch, in its branches. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into a large amount of flour until it worked through all the dough. Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was filled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. Then he left the crowd and went into, his, into the house. The disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one, and the enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. As the weeds are pulled up and burned by the, in the fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels, and they will weed out of his kingdom everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This is God's word. Go ahead and keep your Bibles open to Matthew 13. And let's pray together as we uh, look at God's word. Lord, as we think of um, your goodness in providing for us as we celebrate the harvest season uh, with our annual Thanksgiving holiday, uh, Lord, your word points us to a greater harvest at the end of the age. And we pray that you would give us ears to hear your voice this morning as we look at this parable, as we look at your word. We want to see what it is you're teaching us about who you are and how you are establishing your kingdom on this earth. So be with us as we open your word. Be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. As I was driving uh, to church this morning, 
There was almost an accident on Route 30, not quite, but a lot of, no squealing, but many, you know, sudden breaks with a flock of turkeys crossing, you know, the road. And it's like, this is just, you know, here we are. We're in Massachusetts. It's Thanksgiving week. I don't know. There's something, I don't know, special or, or unique about celebrating Thanksgiving in the place where it happened, you know. If you're not, if you're from here, maybe that's just kind of, you know, it is what it is. But if you're not from here, I don't know, it's kind of cool. But so, uh, so yeah, you, it, it's, it's Thanksgiving week. Uh, it's been nearly 400 years now since that first harvest festival that the pilgrims and the, the members of the Wampanoag tribe shared together, not far from here. Uh, but as I'm sure many of you know, Thanksgiving wasn't established as a national holiday until 1863 with the proclamation uh, of Abraham Lincoln. And what's interesting is that when Lincoln declared Thanksgiving as a national holiday, he did so right in the middle of the nation's most violent domestic crisis in history, right in the middle of the Civil War. Uh, it was a day set aside so that, quote, the gracious gifts of the Most High God might be solemnly, reverently, and gratefully acknowledged as with one heart and one voice by the whole American people. So even though the war wasn't over, Lincoln recognized that God was still in control. And he wanted the whole nation to recognize that as well and to do that by stopping to give thanks and praise to him. We see a similar tension in our passage this morning in Matthew 13, 24 to 43. God's people are in the midst of a conflict, not a national crisis or, or not only a national crisis, but a cosmic and a heavenly one. God's heavenly kingdom was breaking into the broken and rebellious chaos that was filling the earth. And there were a lot of expectations about what the coming of God's kingdom would look like. The prophets in the Old Testament spoke of how in those days and in that time, when I will restore the fortunes of Judah and Jerusalem, I will gather all nations, I'll bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat, and there I will enter into judgment against them, against these nations, concerning my inheritance, my people Israel, for they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. God's people expected that when God's kingdom would come, he would come and vindicate his name and his people by restoring to them their fortunes and by judging their enemies. And they wanted God's kingdom to come. If I can use three words to summarize what many were expecting in the coming of God's kingdom, they would be big, loud, and victorious. That was the expectation of the day. A spectacle for all the world to see. And it's not that different from a lot of our own expectations uh, of today either. When we think of what it should look like for the kingdom of God to advance on this earth, what evidence should we see that God's ruling and his reign is filling the world, we think big, loud, and victorious. That's what we think we should see. Big numbers of people coming to Christ. Big visibility. 
successful events, huge results, the powers of darkness being driven back and put in their place. We want celebrity converts. We want you know, Christians in places of power and influence. Institutions to conform to Christian standards. Because then people will know that God means business. It's big, loud, victorious. But what happens when we look for the coming of the kingdom, the advance of the kingdom like that, and we don't see it, and we don't hear it, and in fact it looks like we're losing. When worldliness increases and the influence of God's people decreases, as is happening in many ways today. If God's kingdom is coming, then why do so many of my friends think me odd for believing this stuff? Why does our culture continue to celebrate and reward ungodliness and wickedness? Did we do something wrong? I mean, did did we say the wrong thing as we've been going about? We start second-guessing ourselves. Or worse, we start to second-guess God. Is he really king? Is his kingdom really coming? I mean, where is it? Is he really powerful enough to make right everything that's wrong in this broken and rebellious world? What happens when our expectations about how God will establish his kingdom don't seem to line up with what we see going on in the world around us? The disciples were wrestling with those same questions. As we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew together, we've seen in the last few chapters a a rising opposition to Jesus, such that the religious leaders are now actively plotting to kill this king. And so the disciples are wondering, where's the boom? You know, where's the, where's the glory? Where's the victory? Where, where's the judgment on your enemies? When will the kingdom be handed back to Israel? Why are your enemies still so successful? We thought the dawning of the kingdom was going to be big, loud, and victorious. Well, in Matthew 13, Jesus wants to correct some of their misplaced expectations and probably some of ours as well about how his kingdom will come. He wants us to stop right in the midst of what looks like a losing battle and remember that God is still in control that there is a greater harvest to come at the end of the age, which will bring about an even greater thanksgiving. As verses 34 and 35 puts it, he wants to reveal his hidden kingdom to his followers, things that have been hidden since the creation of the world. Yet, he wants to, at the same time, keep that concealed from those, from the crowds, from those outside the kingdom, those who've been following him around but are not really with him and instead stand against him. And so what we see in Matthew 13, as Matthew puts it here, is a fulfillment of the pattern set back in Psalm 72. Like the psalmist there, Jesus is opening his mouth in parables, in short stories, metaphors, proverbs, sayings that both reveal and conceal. They reveal the secrets of the kingdom to God's people on the inside while concealing them 
from those on the outside. And, and namely, what he wants to reveal to his people is that his kingdom is not going to break onto the scene in a big, loud, and victorious way as they had been expecting. Rather, it will begin through a humble servant who will give his life on a lowly cross. But though it starts small, and grows quietly and often in unseen ways, in the end, God's kingdom will prevail over the entire earth. Jesus uses three parables to make this point. So take a look at chapter 13 with me, starting in verse 24. He starts with the parable of the weeds in 24 through 30. And then just like last week with the the parable of the sower, he ends this section with an explanation of that same parable of the wheat and the weeds in verses 36 to 43. And then sandwiched in between that, we have two short parables, the parable of the mustard seed and of the leaven, and then another brief explanation of why he's speaking in parables, what we just looked at in verses 34 and 35. He's making known the secrets of God's kingdom. Now, I want us to notice some of the things that these three parables have in common. All three of them, the the wheat in the weeds, the, the mustard seed in the leaven, all three of them talk about or use the imagery of growth. So the wheat and the weeds are growing, the mustard seed's growing, the leaven spreading throughout the loaf. All three of them speak of something unseen or hidden. Whether the sprouts are weeds or wheat, you can't tell yet. It's hidden. The tiny mustard seed, what it's going to become, it's hidden. The, the, the leaven or the yeast that's hidden inside the loaf. All three of them speak of how that something hidden will eventually prevail. The wheat is carefully harvested while the weeds are burned. The mustard seed becomes the largest plant in the garden. The leaven permeates the entire loaf. And all three of these things take time. There is much patience required to see these things come to fruition. With each parable, Jesus is correcting a misplaced expectation about how his kingdom will grow over all the earth. And since he concludes with the parable of the wheat and the weeds with that explanation, we'll save that one for last and we'll start with the parable of the mustard seed. In verses 31 to 32, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all your seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that birds of the air come and perch or nest in its branches. I remember in um, science class, uh, either middle school or high school, doing some sort of experiment with mustard seeds. Such, and we had to use a magnifying glass to get a close look at them. They were that small. And I remember kind of using that magnifying class, glass to, to crush the seeds to see, you know, and, and actually it's yellow inside. It looks like mustard. It's interesting. Uh, now, that's a strange way, this, this mustard, that's a strange way to describe the universal reign of the true king of heaven and earth, the tiniest seed known to man. But it paints a pretty vibrant 
picture and corrects a common uh, misplaced expectation such that you know we expect that if you're going to win you got to start big go big or go home as we say and we've been programmed to think that bigger is better you used to buy razors with a single blade and then you you know you get the double but then that wasn't good. Now you have the Mach 3. But now that wasn't good enough. You have the Quattro. Pretty soon you're going to have like 16 blades scraping your face or something. You know, or, you know, you used to be able to only get a hamburger with a single patty. And, and now it's, you know, a double or a triple and so on. And, and so because the world works this way, we expect God to work that way as well. And when he doesn't start big, we get confused even a little discouraged, disappointed. What can God possibly do with a few people gathering regularly, trying to love each other like family and tell others about Jesus? If we really want to change the, the shape, the spiritual climate of New England, wouldn't it be easier if we were much bigger? What, what good is it if I'm the only Christian in my school, in my class? Or my job? How can God do anything with that? What can God possibly do with, with a dozen ordinary unschooled men of no status, of little power, but who had been with Jesus? He can create a movement that has now grown to some estimates of 2.2 billion people worldwide today. Just 12 followers. What Jesus tells his followers here and what we need to remember is that contrary to our expectations, his kingdom starts rather small. Yet like the mustard seed, which grows to become the largest plant in the garden so that it can support the weight of of birds coming and building their homes in its branches. So God's kingdom will grow to be the most powerful kingdom in all creation, the only one that's big enough to hold the weight of all nations and all peoples in its branches under the reign of King Jesus. Let's look at the next parable, the parable of the leaven. Verse 33. He told them still another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into or hid in a large amount of flour until it worked through all the dough. So what does baking bread have to do with the kingdom of heaven? Uh, Here the emphasis is on the hidden or the unseen way that the kingdom often grows. Again, we're programmed to think that if something is successful, it should gain a lot of attention. Uh, It should be loud enough for people to hear and see and take notice. And often the way we approach ministry as God's people buys into that mindset. We 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 flock to big name speakers, we 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 try to pull off big events. We want people to write about us in the newspaper. And and God can certainly and often does use things done on a big scale. And we pray that he would. But so much of the work of the kingdom is like that hidden yeast or that leaven. It's in there, it's working, but you can't tell. You just, if you stare at a loaf, 
I don't have the patience to do this. You're going to be sitting there a long time watching that thing rise. But you can't see what it's doing, but it's doing something. It takes time to see what will come of it. And so if, if we're expecting God's kingdom to work in predominantly loud and conspicuous ways, that can be kind of discouraging. Nobody writes articles about a student who decides to eat lunch with a lonely or unpopular kid. Nobody, you know, inviting your neighbors over for dinner, getting to know them so that you can love them with the hope of the gospel, that isn't going to go viral on Facebook. It's not. You know, the, the chaotic event that we call family devotions in our home where we wrestle kids to try and get them to sit still for three minutes uh, and, and listen to a Bible story and you wonder, is any of this taking you know, nobody knows when you go into your prayer closet and you pray and plead with the Lord day after day that your friend would come to Jesus. Nobody sees those things. All of the relatively unseen ways that we love or we serve or we share with others, and yet each of them is contributing to the slow but steady growth of the kingdom of God the reign and rule of Jesus that will one day prevail over the entire earth just as that leaven permeates the dough. One of the most important lessons that we need to learn when it comes to investing in the lives of others with the hope of the gospel is that you can't always see what God is doing. You can't. Think of how a plant grows. You know, you, you put the seed in there, and then you cover it up with soil. You can't see if it's doing anything. But you, you water it, you, you weed it, and you wait. That's what you can do. And so it is when we plant the seed of the gospel. We plant and we water, but God is the one who has to give the growth. And sometimes it takes years just for that sprout to break the surface. And even longer for it to bear fruit. Some of you have met my friend Christopher Yuan. Christopher uh, came here and spoke to us a couple years ago about how Christians should respond to the question of homosexuality. Uh, Christopher himself, one who struggles with same-sex attraction, but who has chosen a path of holiness and celibacy because of his conviction of what Scripture teaches, that marriage is for one man and one woman. And so when he was here, he shared his story of running away from his family. And running away from the Lord, even though he didn't know the Lord enough to run away from him at the time. He dropped out of a prestigious dental school. Um, his father was a dentist wait, with a career waiting for him. He threw that away. He became deeply involved in the circuit party scene. He contracted HIV. Uh, he was doing drugs and he was dealing drugs and eventually landed himself in federal prison. And all the while, as Christopher kept running from his family, moving farther and farther away, his mother prayed for him. Every Monday, she fasted and prayed for seven years that God would rescue her son. And he did. Eventually, Christopher came to the rock bottom where he had nowhere else to go, and God opened his heart to the message of the gospel. I met him in grad school when I was at Wheaton 
Today, he's an Old Testament professor at Moody College. We cannot always see what God is doing. Sometimes there's no evidence whatsoever. But God will be faithful to build his kingdom. He's not going to do it the way we sometimes expect. Not with the the shock and awe of worldly kingdoms. With violence and force and, and swift judgment on all enemies. But through the humble ministry and sacrificial death of his son. And he doesn't need our gimmicks to speed up the process. He doesn't need us to manipulate our friends or our children so that they look like they're bearing fruit in front of others. When he, what he asks of his people is to pray, to proclaim his good news, and to love as we've been loved. That's what he asks of his people. And then to wait. To wait with expectancy and faith that God will accomplish his saving purposes. It's not an excuse for laziness. It's a reminder of who's really in control. God's kingdom starts small. And it grows quietly and often in unseen ways. But in the end, it will prevail over the entire earth. And when it does, God will then bring about the judgment and victory that his people were waiting for. And that's what our last parable tells us, the parable of the wheat and the weeds. Jesus tells the parable in verses 24 to 30. The kingdom of heaven is like a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while everyone was sleeping, his enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and went away. When the wheat sprouted and formed heads, then the weeds also appeared. The owner's servant came and said to him, Sir, didn't you sow good seed in your field? Where then did the weeds come from? An enemy did this, he replied. The servants asked him, Do you want us to go and pull them up? No, he answered, Because while you are pulling the weeds, you may root up the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. At that time, I will tell the harvesters, first collect the weeds and tie them in bundles to be burned and then gather the wheat and bring it into my barn. And as with the parable of the sower uh, earlier in the chapter, here too, Jesus offers a private explanation of this parable to his disciples in verses 36 to 34. So look at verse 37 with me. He answered, the one who sowed the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world, and the good seed stands for the sons of the kingdom. The weeds are the sons of the evil one. The enemy who sows them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the harvesters are angels. So Jesus is explaining how his kingdom, how victory is actually going to come with his kingdom. And the tension of this parable is that in a field where there should be only wheat, an enemy has sown weeds. Weeds like darnel, which in the early stages of growth can't really be distinguished very easily from wheat. It looks very similar. But when it's full grown, its grain is poisonous. And so one can't simply ignore the weeds lest they ruin 
the entire crop unless the evil one's plan is allowed to prevail. But neither can you just go in and start pulling them up immediately as the servants do. They look so similar and their roots are are so intertwined with the wheat that the risk of damaging the real thing is too great. And so the wheat is left to grow in an uncomfortable environment where it's surrounded with weeds on every side until the time comes for the harvest. Judgment and vindication have to wait until the end when the fruit will show what kind of plant each one really is when the ultimate harvest will take place. But in the end, that judgment and that vindication will come. And that's what Jesus emphasizes in his explanation. Verse 40. As the weeds are pulled up and burned in the fire, so it will be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send out his angels and they will weed out his kingdom, out of his kingdom, everything that causes sin and all who do evil. They will throw them into the fiery furnace where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So though we live in a world that's very much like this field, it's mixed, it's, it's marked by a battle between two kingdoms, the kingdom of God and the kingdom of darkness, God will be faithful to bring justice in the end. And that justice will take the shape of both judgment on his enemies and vindication of his name and his people. God must judge his enemies. It's an unpopular subject today. But in a king who does not make right everything that's wrong in the world, who allows evil to go unchecked, isn't a king worth following. He's not a just king, and he's not a loving king either, to turn a blind eye to wickedness, to the causes, to those who cause sin and those who, who do it. And so the weeds who reject his rule, who oppose his people, whose poison causes sin and whose evil offends the holiness of God, they will come under his just judgment in the end. And it's not a pretty picture. It's described here with the terrible image of a fiery furnace wherein there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. At the same time, God must vindicate his name and his people. So there must come a time when all challenges to God's rightful authority as king of heaven and earth must be put down and he alone left standing. His reign must prevail. The earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And when Habakkuk uses that verse, it's in contrast to the would-be kingdoms who are trying to take God's place. There must come a time when God will vindicate his name and there must come a time when God will vindicate his people to deliver them from the evil of this world and the accusations of the enemy and to show who they truly are, a redeemed people, a people who are no longer, because of God's grace, are no longer under the condemnation of the Lord. They've been cleared because Jesus was enough. He is their vindication. His death on the cross 
was given so that they could be rescued from the judgment they deserved. A people cleansed by the blood of Jesus and a people refashioned by God's spirit who in that day, as Matthew puts it here, will shine like the sun. They will reflect the glory of God back to God and out to all people. When you look at the redeemed people of of God in the end, when, when God's salvation has done its work to rescue them from sin and to remake them into his image, you will see a picture of the beauty and power and glory of God. They will be vindicated. They will be shown to be who Jesus is making them to be through the cross and resurrection. So victory will come in the end. Not a... Not a victory because of anything special in his people, solely by his grace. Solely by his grace, but victory will come. And the disciples were right to expect the coming of the kingdom to bring that victory. What they didn't understand, and what Jesus is now revealing to them in this parable, is that there's an already and a not yet aspect to God's kingdom. God is establishing his kingdom in in two phases. So Jesus launched or inaugurated that kingdom in his first coming. So it's already here, but he won't complete it or consummate it until he returns. So it's not yet finished. Which means we live in the meantime. Between the coming of Jesus when he started the kingdom, but, but not yet when the victory is full and sin has been put away and all that's left is the glory and kingdom of God. So we live in between those two in the meantime in a world filled with both wheat and weeds and you can't always tell the difference between the two. And quite honestly, it can be a frustrating place to be. It's hard to watch darkness and evil gain a growing foothold in this world, and to feel powerless to do anything about it. I, I think my hunch is that every generation of parents says this line, uh, but it's scary to think of the world my children are going to grow up in. You know, the world just seems to be in a collision course. And it's hard and it's frustrating in this meantime, not just to... to to worry about the darkness of the world, but to fight against the darkness and evil that lingers in my own heart as well. The ways that I continue to try and serve myself and think much of myself and make much of myself at the expense of you or of God. We want God's kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. We want to be free from this body of sin. We want to be... We want to vindicate his name and and we want him to fill the earth with his knowledge, the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And we pray that he does it soon. I mean, as we sang earlier this morning, even so, Lord, quickly come to your final harvest home. Gather all your people in, free from sorrow, free from sin. There, forever purified, in your presence to abide. Come with your angels. Come, raise the glorious harvest home. We pray and long 
for God, for Jesus to return and do that. And it's hard to wait. But as we find ourselves waiting for the coming of the Lord, living in this meantime in a mixed field, we need to remember the Apostle Peter's exhortation. But do not forget this one thing, dear friends. With the Lord, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years are like a day. The Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, specifically his promise of Jesus' return. As some understand slowness, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Though it starts small and grows in in quiet and often unseen ways, in the end, God's kingdom will prevail over the entire earth. So may we be found faithful when our Lord comes. May we not be discouraged when the world looks like it's winning and things look too small to be used by God or, or we can't see how he's actually at work, may we trust God to build his kingdom. And may we take advantage of his patience, not for sin and self-indulgence, but for the urgency of laying our lives down in gospel witness. Jesus is coming again. May we be faithful to pray and proclaim and to love Others, as we bear witness to the good news of Jesus, who died for our sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. May we be people who pray as the Lord taught us to pray. And that's how I want to end this morning, that we together would pray the Lord's Prayer. It should be up on the screen. Join me, please. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For yours is the kingdom and the power, and the glory forever.